Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Hi, welcome to episode number 30 of the Community Composting Podcast. I'm here today with someone special, Joe McMillan, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Atlas Organics. Uh, Atlas Organics is making some big moves in the composting industry and um, recently got a $200 million uh, investment or financing um, from a, an, another company. and. Uh, I'm just curious, Joe, uh, how do you plan on, you know, what is the strategy for growth with Atlas Organics? Next uh, four, four years um, to really try and address the composting infrastructure issue and organic waste processing uh, capacity issue that we see as a major hole um, across the U.S. and maybe further um, across North America. Yeah, I definitely agree that the composting infrastructure is not there, especially in the state of Florida or the southeast region of the U.S. Um, you know, that when O-Town Compost started, we were the collectors and processors, and we still are. But, you know, that's not by choice. That's just because no one else was doing it. But how many composting sites does Atlas Organics have uh, across the U.S. and in what locations? Yeah, so currently um, we have 10 locations, predominantly in the southeastern U.S. uh, With, you know, kind of with you guys have a lot of concentration in in Florida, Um, so so two in Tampa, um, one in Vero Beach, and one down in Port Charlotte. Um, the sites do hold north of 300,000 tons per year um, worth of material inbound and have over a half a million tons per year processing capacity. And are those composting sites uh, accepting both food waste and yard waste or predominantly yard waste? So... It's about 50-50 at this point, which sites are currently accepting food waste. However, you know, some of the recent sites have been designed with the ability to accept food waste in the future um, after some modifications. So we recently did a couple of acquisitions on the west coast of Florida, and, and those sites are not currently accepting food waste, but we're hoping to, to have that capability and sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. That's exciting. Um, I'm kind of curious about your origin story. And I saw that, you know, you and your co-founder 
uh, kind of started Atlas Organics, founded in 2014. You partnered at the Spartanville Landfill, like a public-private partnership. And, uh, you know, how did it go from the beginning, uh, from the very beginning? Yeah, so I started a recycling company while I was in college at Walford College, which is a a small liberal arts school in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And basically from there, uh, we got some clientele that were uh, large corporations um, looking to meet zero waste to landfill diversion rates. Um, And in order to achieve that, they needed to recycle food waste and when we went into the market to start collecting food waste we quickly found out that there was very limited processing capacity in the southeastern u.s especially around food waste with food waste capacity and so um you know met my business partner gary back in 2014 um gary was working out in the San Francisco Bay Area, running uh, about seven facilities for vision recycling. Um, Gary had started Clemson's kind of compost research program when he was there and the food waste diversion program at Clemson. Uh, He moved back to Greenville and was looking to figure out a way to build a compost facility in the upstate of South Carolina. So um, it was kind of a perfect match for the two of us. Uh, We uh, Atlas, or sorry, I had the, the food waste accounts to provide the feedstock for a composting facility, and Gary had the know-how on how to run one. Um, so then it was just a matter of figuring out where to site one, and uh, started a conversation with Greenville County, South Carolina, um, to build a site that was co-located with their landfill, and built that site uh, in 2016 is when it opened. Um, and it is uh, predominantly fed by the food waste from our collection division. So you do have a, a collection division in that area. I mean, I see that Atlas Organics has a couple community composters, uh, like Compost House in Spartanburg, and I believe there's another in Tennessee. Um, you know, how much of Atlas Organics, how much of the business is focused on collection versus processing? Yeah, I would say over 90% of our business is in processing at this point, if not 95%. Um, However, our roots were in collection. Um, So we do collection in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee currently. Um, We do residential, commercial, and uh, industrial uh, diversion programs for all different types of clients. Um, but, you know, outside of those markets don't really do a lot of hauling. Um, we really like to partner with, with all the other haulers that are already existing in a market to provide feedstock to the facilities that we build. What is the key to a composting site hauler relationship? Because, you know, as you know, if the hauler is not really doing a good job catching contamination at the source, if they don't talk with the generator, like the business or residents, um, you know, there's the huge problem of contamination. And also, uh, you know, 
I'm sure there might be some uh, some problems with, you know, is there any problems with like tipping fees being under debate or um, how do you maintain a good relationship with your haulers? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key with working with haulers is just setting very clear expectations um, on the front end of a relationship, whether that's around, you know, what's tolerable contamination or what the gate fees are going to be that work for both of us. Um, and then figuring out a program with haulers that allows us to grow over time together. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times people enter into a relationship and don't think about like, what does this relationship look like five, 10 years from now as my hauling partner grows or, you know, as an Atlas facility grows and maybe has limited capacity. And so I think it's extremely important that you kind of think through, you know, how that you are going to co how you coexist with your hauling partner, you know, not only today, but five, 10 years from now. Yeah, because it's like an ecosystem. You got, you know, the generator, the hauler, the middleman, and then you have the end you the end user or the compost site. And then I guess you even have the end user of the compost. No one wants, you know, a bunch of plastics and contamination ground up in their compost. So yeah, it's quite the ecosystem. Yeah, no, you're exactly right there. I mean everything is is super closed loop um you know we have where we actually have collection we work with uh chefs that um you know divert food waste from the restaurants it goes to our compost facility um and then goes back to uh we even have cases where the compost that we we create goes back right into the the gardens that some of those chefs or small urban farms that some of those chefs run uh, to put food on the tables and in their restaurants. So, um, you know, I think that's one very inter interesting thing about our industry is how, how closed loop it is and, and how it like the end product can potentially touch the, uh, the, the generator. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> I jokingly tell my subscribers, like, if you don't take off your fruit stickers, I mean, it's, it's going to come right back to you. So please take off your fruit stickers. But I want to ask you, like, what is, you know, Atlas Organics, your, your main facility or your first facility? What is your tolerance for contamination? And how do you go about controlling that contamination? And I understand you use technology, like I've heard about your site in San Antonio that uses AI, I believe. But, um, you know, for a, a small composter who doesn't have that technology, if you could mention that as well. Yeah, so we are very um, upfront on the front end of a relationship as to what the contamination policy is. Um, you know, I think it's about 3% by volume is our tolerance rate. Um, and, and like when the truck driver dumps, you have like a spot checker or someone? We do. And, um, you know, where we see the most contamination is really in our sites that are accepting from our own 
collection divisions and alternative haulers. But even if it's an outside, um, an outside uh, hauler that's bringing material into one of our sites, you know, we, we spot it um, when it's being dumped on the tip floor. So it's whether it's one of our trucks or, or, or an outside hauler coming in, it, the material gets spotted. If there's a high contamination rate, then the contamination is pulled out of the pile and measured and documented in our routing software system so it can be shared with the customer, um, whether that's a, a third-party hauler or, or directly to a, to a customer that we might have collected the material from. And then we have a three-strike rule. Um, the first is kind of, you know, a, hey, you know, can you verbally, like, clean this up? Um and a retraining um, of the customer. The second we start to implement a, a fine um, based on how on the contaminated load. And then the, the third offense for us is, is actually the, the firing of the customer um, because our contamination, contamination is uh, such an impediment to our, our finished product that it's not worth us jeopardizing the quality of our end product to, you know, take more material in at the end of the day. And with that policy, how have you seen, uh, you know, other stakeholders respond to those three strikes? Usually, you know, most of our stakeholders are, are early adopters. And so there's not a whole, like a whole lot of tolerance on their end for their, their staff or customers, um, you know, violating the contamination policy because they have the same end goal that, that we do at the end of the day and the same kind of mission. So we don't typically have a whole, a whole lot of issue with the implementation of our contamination policy. It really just takes that, you know, first offense kind of retraining usually to address that. Okay. So they're early adopters, meaning they're, um, people who got on the composting movement early and are more likely to want to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think generally with, with food waste as a whole right now, outside of municipal curbside collection, we're still kind of in the early adopter phase. I mean, it's not the, you know, most cost-effective cost effective service until you really get to an industrial, um, level and so it really takes the people who are have some type of initiative in place to to divert food waste and they they care about doing it to that are going to be involved in those programs yeah you're definitely right especially here in the southeast um that's interesting too you know a lot of composters say by diverting food waste from the trash you're gonna save money on garbage collection costs but that doesn't really happen until you get to that industrial level, like such a high volume. Um, like offices, you're not going to save them on trash by diverting some coffee grounds, not even really for cafes and restaurants, unless, you know, it's the volume is there. But um, so do you, does Atlas um, in your, your, food waste uh, composting sites, do you accept PLA? 
compostable liners and other compostable serviceware? And what are your thoughts on the serviceware that's out there? Yeah, so at most of our sites, we do take uh, compostable serviceware. Um, Leslie Rogers, who's our director of sales, is actually on the VPI uh, board. And so, you know, from our from our inception, you know, our, our route has been in food waste diversion and a stance that I took relatively early on. And I think I'm supported by Gary in this. Um, however, I want to speak for him without him being here is that it really take is going to take, you know, take us being able to accept disposables in our processes and manage that material to really get beyond that early adopter phase um you know i think we're starting to see some of the fast food and consumer product industry look to compostable um products and packaging to potentially divert more uh food waste from the landfill but that's gonna there's gonna have to be some acceptance by the industry uh for processing that capacity and i think that that comes through you know, good certification programs like uh, like BPI and others. And then also, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to correctly educate the public on, you know, the difference between PLA and PT and, you know, make sure that the messaging and marking is adequate on the packaging and there's some level of standard across the industry as to what is acceptable and what's not from uh from both a, a like a disposable serviceware um product component um from the quality of the product as well as like a a, pack, um, a marking on the packaging that's identifiable and widely recognized by the public and like i always wondered about this but um what about like pla you know, plastic utensils, they look like plastic, but they're BPI certified or PLA. How do, through the life cycle of the compost, how do those break down and not turn into PFAS or microplastics or something? Yeah, so um, we're getting a little bit of, above my technical pay grade here, but uh I'll, I'll give you my, my opinion. We specifically with, with liners and plates and the cups, our, our pile temperature is getting to an adequate um, level to break those down on a first pass of the material through the, uh, through the process. Where we have issues is when, you know, I'll say like one of our bigger issues is when that material gets like clumped or stacked together in the process with it not breaking down more so than um, more so than the material as it is as a standalone like piece of PLA in the, in the process, you know, I think the, the going to the micro plastics question and, you know, then the, the identification of, of like a, a fork versus a PLA fork versus uh you know a, a polypropylene um, fork or polystyrene fork is that 
you know, there's got to be some type of message messaging that the public can identify. Um, and I think it's a little bit simpler than the, the recycling industry's messaging where we started getting into, you know, seven different types of plastics. And then some of these plastics aren't like, I feel like the PLA issue is a little bit easier to address because there's not different classifications of PLA. And as long as we meet an industry standard that is actually compostable and we have consistent messaging, um, you know, within the consumer products industry um, and the generators of these uh, PLA products, then I think, you know, we can, we can bring that to the public's attention in a way that's easily decipherable and can direct them to, to put that material in their, in their composting bins. Um, I think another challenge too is like with, if we're talking about like fast food, you know, I think there almost has to be this decision to be made where you go to everything being compostable, where you don't have this inherent risk of, um, you know, plastics getting into your bin. But then we're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of supply chain. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's like a three or four times price point increase for the disposable pla single use plastic versus compostable products but yeah that would have to happen it would have to be a universal switch not like a little couple items here a couple items there that would only confuse the the customer and invite contamination what is your most what um you know what product product that has been greenwashed do you most shake your fist at in frustration um i'm not sure that i not sure what what would be um one off the top of my head i mean one i think of is the uh the polystyrene cups that say they're biodegradable kind of drive me nuts because it's just completely bogus uh at the end of the day but i mean i think that's like the biggest case of greenwashing that i can think of that really drives me up the wall is when i go to a, a fast food restaurant um while i'm traveling or something or on the road and uh and get one of those cups yeah that's yeah that really is bogus i can think of a lot of single-use plastic bags that also say biodegradable or reusable recyclable but you know they don't specify <laughs> any more than that so so yeah um you know give me like that san antonio site um where you have a public private private partnership is it with the county or or the city of san antonio yeah so that project's with the city of san antonio texas um mm -hmm. You know, we basically provide uh, composting infrastructure for over 300,000 um, of the city's customers, um, have about 68,000 tons per year of co-collected yard waste and green waste um, coming into the site, as well as, um, you know, probably another 40,000-ish tons a year of um brush whether that's from city trucks or, or residents dropping off at the site and um how does that process work you know is there 
is it uh, permitted for food waste or only yard debris? So that site is a, a food waste yard waste. Um, it's permitted for both. So we have a commingled cart. So it's a, a green waste cart where the city allows the resident to commingle um, food waste in their in their green waste cart. Um, and basically Atlas runs the process from start to finish from when the time the from the time the city truck enters enters the gate of the facility until the product is um, out the back end to to a customer. So that site's really unique. That's that's like our newest uh, one of our newest facilities um, has some really cool new new technology in it. So the city trucks come in, tip on the tip floor, then the material is fed into our uh, pre-sort facility, um, which uses a process chain compiled of uh, shredders, trauma screen, um, a sort deck, um, AI and robotics, and then a a grinder um, that gets the material ready to go into the composting process. We also add a lot of water at that point in our process um, into our mix. Uh, Then the material goes into our um, aerated static. What is the water for? Yeah, so we're just trying to get our our moisture content right there. And it's something we honestly haven't 100% um, gotten to a point where we're completely comfortable with the site yet. Um, Just getting our moisture content appropriate um, for in in our pre-processed mix to make... um, make the spec product that we want to come off the back end of the process so you know in one thing we run into in both texas and florida is just the drier and climates um we have to add a decent amount of moisture into our process because the yard waste um yard waste to food waste mix is about uh 85 yard waste to 15 percent food waste so we're not quite getting the moisture content that we might get in another site uh from food waste feedstocks Gotcha. So what happens after the water is added to the pre-processing mix? It then goes to the active area or? Yeah, then it goes to the to the active composting area. So uh, we have a, uh, a phase one aeration. Um, so we use extended aerated static pile um, composting methodology. Uh, we load the material into the ASPs. Um, it and is it like up. below ground or above ground ASP? We are, we typically do pipe on grade. Um, you know, we haven't been able to honestly just make pipe below grade. It would be awesome. Um, but we haven't been able to make it pencil, uh, today, but no, we do pipe on grade. Um, you know, I think we've got a six, six horse six horsepower uh, worth of blowers on each uh, individual zone controlled by. And what type of pipe do you use? So it's a perforated HDP pipe hooked up to a custom-made manifold that ties into the blowers. Awesome. So it sits on there for about how long and... And yeah, you can continue with the process. So sorry for interrupting. Yeah, so we're about 45 days, 45 to 60 days total time in our process. Um, 
we've gotten it down. I think the lowest is like 42 days um, with a higher nitrogen content mix um, with a wetter feedstock. So, yeah, we run about uh, 45 to 60 days in the aeration beds. And then the material goes to a curing pile from the curing into a, into a screen. And then um, from there, uh, goes out to the end user. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and during the curing phase, I guess that's like phase two, do you turn it at all or what, what areas do you turn it or do you only turn it when you're moving it from phase one to phase two? So we actually do two stages of aeration. If, especially if it's a food waste site, it doesn't always happen in a yard waste only facility. Uh, but we do a phase one, phase two. So while we're 45 to 60 days on air, um, that's in two different phases. So we'll have phase one, phase two. And then coming off phase two, we go to a curing pile. And we don't stay in curing too long um, before the material screen. So because we get a lot of our stabilization off coming off of our second phase of air. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. So if you're a community composter, you know, most of us community composters have our own composting sites and we start small with Peter Moon's ASP bin, or maybe if you're lucky enough, you have a skid steer and you still are using PVC perforated pipes. You know, what is the next step up for a community composters looking to process their own material? Um, you know, how, how do you go from processing like one ton a week to five tons a week? Yeah, so we grew kind of that same path. We started with Peter's system as the base um, of, of what we do today even. Um, and it built on that over time. So, you know, I think that's something we've really been trying to work through as Atlas recently. Um, we kind of had solutions for um, municipalities or, you know, even if we were going to partner with a community composter or a hauler that wanted to build a facility for really 15,000 tons per year plus. Um and recently really sat down and said, how do we, how do we address this, the, the smaller end of the, the market here? And so we now have a system um, that we've built in-house 
It's a completely off the grid system um, that will process up to 6,000 tons per year. So it's really good for like, if you're doing two to 6,000 tons per year um, worth of material, you could do less on it, but I don't know if it's cost effective um, and just completely off the grid system. So we build them all at our main office in Spartanburg and then off deploy the off the grid, meaning no electricity or water. Needed. No, no electricity. So it's a completely off the grid system. Um, there was an article about it, I think in waste, waste advantage recently, but it's a completely solarized system that comes packed in a 20 foot, uh, shipping container. Um, it has all of our controls. So it has the temperature feedback loops and all of our control systems on it. Um, all the pipe, um, everything packed into a box. It has a little office in it, um, with a TV that kind of monitors the controls. Um, so yeah, that's been like a really cool solution that we've been working on for both smaller municipalities and smaller haulers that we might partner with to try to develop infrastructure out. And how much is the price point? So we don't actually like sell them as like a unit. Um, we're not, we're not a, like a consumer product company, I guess. Um, so it's more more working with, with haulers or municipalities to figure out a solution that works for both of us, but it does make, made those solutions a lot more cost effective than they, they have been in the past. Shoot. I think Orlando could use a, a system like that, being able to process 6,000 tons a, a, a year. I mean, it yep. is a ghost town out here. So we should definitely <laughs> talk after this uh, interview, but um you know, that's really interesting to see how you guys have, you know, taken on such a big role processing the food waste. I want to talk a little bit about your soil blends and like what kind of products does Atlas Organics produce from lowest grade to highest grade, I guess. Yeah, so historically, we have really just concentrated on manufacturing uh compost and that you know we did a, a yard waste food waste and a biosolid based compost based on the feedstocks that were going into it um here recently as we've grown we've expanded our product lines um so we're doing several different soil blends at uh at sites in florida um we started making a golf course pro uh, like top dressing product called striker um that's a quarter inch uh screen armory uh certified compost and also started doing more mulches so we we have all different kinds of, of mulches um we've got natural fine mulch we've got a natural mulch um, and then we have several different varieties of colored mulches gotcha any vermicompost? No, no vermicompost to date, but uh, Jorge Montezuma, who is our lead engineer, is um, begging to, to try to, to do some. I've actually talked with Jorge in, um, over the phone once, but it was about 
uh, getting a site permitted in the state of Florida, because I think he handles your guys's like permitting. And, um, you know, what are your thoughts about a state like Florida where, you know, I think to get registered as a composting site, uh, you know, the rules aren't, don't seem too bad. You have to be within 200 feet away from a water body. Uh, you have to have like fire access, say if like the material were to combust. Um, you know, I don't remember the regulation being like that stringent. How does Florida compare to other states where you guys get permitted? Um, Florida is probably one of the least stringent states that we work in as far as like permitting. Um, we haven't really looked at permitting any type of biosolids facility or facility that would handle a higher classification of feedstock uh, above food waste down here. So I don't know how it directly relates to that, but you know, you can pretty much under a registration in Florida do yard waste and, and pre-consumer food waste and even a little bit of post-consumer um, depending on the source it comes from. So, you know, I, I don't know, generally speaking, um, Florida is probably one of the least stringent states we work in, though, from a permitting perspective. But that doesn't mean from a compliance perspective that you you get to cut any corners. Um, you still have to have an operations plan and abide by that, um, you know, and and that's one thing that that we're really working hard on this year is to make sure that as we grow that um you know our sites continue to maintain um the highest level of of compliance um and also that that our finished product quality um continues to increase and because that's something that we we've really kind of prided ourselves in the past is, is maintaining quality control mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, the I did talk with uh, Lauren and Karen with the Solid Waste Department of FDEP, and they look at Atlas as like the leader. You know, you guys are, they love to see your success though. So you must be doing a good job staying within compliance, but also diverting solid waste from the landfill. So everyone's happy. Yeah, and we've really enjoyed working with them as well. Um, you know, as we've kind of tried to address some of the some of the organic waste diversion um, issues in Florida. That you know, Florida DEP has been been a, a great regulatory agency to work with to to try to address the issue. So, so um, you know, last year I believe there was a bill that was introduced to Florida State Senate, uh, the organics mandate of any commercial generators generating over a ton per week of food waste. What does Atlas Organics, like, is that something that you guys would love to see? Because personally, I would love to see that even if I'm not the one, you know, involved uh, with all that food waste. But, you know, from a environmentalist standpoint that would be awesome and you know how does atlas organics are you building the infrastructure to be able to handle 
that food waste if a mandate was passed eventually? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously mandates are, are great for the industry and great for diversion and, and great from, from an envir environmental perspective. You know, and I think that we are, are ramping ourselves up to be prepared for something like that to come into play. Um, right now, you know, I think we're probably getting closer to having, you know, the starting capacity that we need to see something like that go through. Um, you know, with 1383 in California, it's obviously creating a lot of change um, in a very positive way, but I'm not sure that the infrastructure exists currently to handle all the material that's going to need to be diverted. Um, so I think there's this, this relationship between, um, you know, regulators and the private industry to just make sure that the appropriate back-end infrastructure is in place and the mandates get rolled out appropriately um, and are adequately able to be enforced to set up all of, like, all of us up for, for success long term, um, rather than, you know, having a lack of communication and it may be one of us isn't, maybe we're not all on the same page. So, um, you know, I think, I think mandates are great for the industry. I think they're great from an environmental perspective. You know, I think there just needs to be adequate planning around how we implement those, those diversion mandates and roll them out over time. Um, so, yeah, but generally, uh, we've seen great things out of like 1383 speeding the progression of the industry up quite drastically in, in California in the past few years. Yeah, I hope uh, the state of Florida takes note and <clears throat> eventually uh, does pass the organics diversion mandate. Um, so just a... You know, one last question, kind of from an entrepreneur standpoint, you know, to clarify how I enter my introduction of you, the, of Atlas Organics. Atlas Organics recently received $2 million in financing and partnership with Generate Capital. Um, you know, and I also read of past articles that you guys, um, you know, were about you know, you received some investment early in the founding of the company and you, that, that really leveraged you guys to grow. Um, as a, a community composter or a small business, like doesn't, you know, giving away equity in the business to investors make you nervous and doesn't, um, you know, how does one go from all of a sudden doing one ton of food waste per week to seeing the demand out there is crazy. How do you get that capital to really kick it into high gear? Yeah, so um, a big thing that we do is, you know, and have always done to, to make sure that we adequately um, bring in capital and, and, it doesn't change our mission or goals as a company is to really vet our investors and make sure that we have um, a line, like an aligned vision moving forward. 
Um, we also look for, for a long-term permanent placement of capital instead of uh, people who are looking for short-term returns. So that, that a lot of times aligns our, our vision as well. So, you know, one of the big things with Generate was, you know, Scott Jacobs, who's the CEO of Generate, uh, really, really focuses on like a complete paradigm shift of our mentality and how we look at infrastructure and build out infrastructure um, and is really looking for permanent placement of capital to change that, that to make that paradigm shift happen. So, you know, a big thing for, for Generate is, is we're not going to make these changes in the next five years, which is your typical private equity or venture capital fund life. Like this is a, this is a, a, a 20, 50, 100 year mission that we're on. And um, so I think for, for, uh, from our perspective, like bringing in, bringing in capital can be really good for you as a company, as long as you make sure that you are 100% aligned with the investors that you tie yourself to. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, what was your first big purchase as a, a small business? Like piece of equipment or vehicle? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our first big purchase was uh, we bought a, a collection truck probably back in 2014, um, you know, that was funded through a community loan fund uh, program. And so that was our first big, big purchase. Our first like big outside non-debt capital was uh, brought in to build our first facility in Greenville, um, which we bought a, a brand new um, Volvo loader for and uh, put in about $150,000 worth of infrastructure. So that was kind of our first big um, equity investment in the company um, was to build that first facility. Awesome. Well, anyway, Joseph, thank you so much uh, for this interview. You've shared a lot of useful information for other composters and you know i wish atlas nothing but success uh you guys are building the infrastructure this industry really needs yeah thanks for having me and uh, you know we should should link up on how to push things along in, in florida at some point and um you know we really have enjoyed the partnerships that we have with community composters and collection companies and are always willing to, to try to figure out um, how to, to progress the industry along. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost, 